All right. We have been in the middle of a sermon series that we're going to close out next week. We've been talking about healing communities and mental health. And so this morning I thought I would just maybe offer a few thoughts on the book of the Psalms because those tend to be the part of the Bible that we turn to for comfort um, when we're looking for comfort from Scripture. And traditionally, the Psalms have been sung in community. You know, singing can sometimes help us remember things a little bit more. They become part of our rhythm. Oftentimes, they're read out in churches, much like when our kids will read the Psalms out. And they're meant to function in a way that shapes us, both individually as well as corporately, in a way that when we've experienced some trauma or suffering or grief or injustice, that they can help us to learn to articulate our pain and perhaps like, have some handholds into some new ways of perceiving our situation um, and the different ways of understanding the world as we're making our way through that. So Walter Brueggemann, I think, offers a framework that I've often found helpful for the Psalms, and he breaks them down into what he calls the Psalms of orientation, the Psalms of disorientation, and then the Psalms of reorientation. So orientation, disorientation, reorientation. All right, so what does that mean? Well, the Psalms of orientation are the ones that talk about the world as a safe place. They proclaim that the world is good and it's stable and that God is faithful and just. And so an example of that psalm that I have on the little sheet, if you picked that up, is from Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise God's holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, forget not all their benefits, who forgives all your sins, heals your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with love and compassion, satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Man, I could use my youth renewed like the eagles after we dug in our garden all day yesterday. (laughs) The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. All right, so the Psalms of orientation are the ones that remind us that we belong to God and we belong in our communities and we belong in the creation, um, that there's a safety there. They give hope and grounding. But... Right? It's precisely that sense of belonging and safety that get rocked right? when we encounter maybe the death of a loved one or a tragedy or when we're suffering. And so we see that this is what's reflected in what are called the Psalms of disorientation. Sometimes called the Psalms of lament or the Psalms of sorrow, which I want to point out are the majority of the Psalms. Now, it's been a little while since I read Brueggemann's book, but if I remember right, it's something like 80% of the psalms can be classified as psalms of disorientation. And those are the ones that we see that are just filled with with pain and with anger. So an example of one with pain would be Psalm 6, verses 2 to 3. Have mercy on me, Lord. I'm faint. Heal me, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, O Lord, how long? Right, and then there are psalms that are vengeful. This is one I bring out a lot, and I think I will read this one in full because it's, it's a little shocking. My God, whom I praise, do not remain silent. For people who are wicked and deceitful have opened their mouths against me, and they've spoke against me with lying tongues. Crystal, maybe this one's for you. Right? Appoint, except it gets a little like, appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let the accuser stand at his right hand. When he's tried, let him be found guilty. May his prayers condemn him. 
May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. (laughs) Well, that, I'll give that name in. (laughs) May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off. Their names blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. Like, oh man, we're hitting dad, we're hitting mom here. May their sins always remain before the Lord that he might not, he may blot out their name from the earth. It's a little uncomfortable. How about the Psalms that blame God? I'll come back to that. Don't worry, I won't let it just sit. Psalm 88. You put me in the lowest pit, all right, kind of accusing In the darkest depths, your wrath lies on me. You've overwhelmed me with your waves. You took from me my closest friends and made me repulsive to them. I'm confined. I can't escape. You've taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. Right? And this, I think, can sometimes feel like a disrespectful way to interact with the creator of the universe. Right? With all this sort of demanding and accusing destroy my enemy. Where are you? You took everything from me. How long? Why aren't you acting? Let's hold that feeling. Let me tell you a little story. Um, Have any of you maybe, if you have pets, uh, maybe had fleas in your house? Yeah, nobody's copping to that. I was like, me either. (laughs) I need that meme with like the shifty eyes there. (laughs) About six weeks ago, Rachel and I noticed we had some like little itchy bumps on our hands and wrists. And we were like, well, maybe it's poison ivy. We've been working out in the garden a lot, but it wasn't that itchy. And Rachel really swells up with poison ivy. So it didn't seem to be that. And I remembered that we had like a month where we forgot to put on that anti-flea medicine for our indoor-outdoor cat. And we had remembered, and we'd put it on like two weeks before, but I had this sinking feeling of like, oh my gosh, in that little bit of time that we forgot, did Obi-Swan Kenobi bring fleas in? (laughs) That little guy. So I went and I looked at a blanket that he often lays on, and sure enough, there was this little flea that was going along. And just for the record, we only ever found two of them, so I don't actually think there were that many. But of course, like you would, you go immediately into overdrive, I've never even had lice. I had no idea what this was like. I've got like a whole new empathy for those of you like when lice is sleeping through the schools. And we washed everything, every piece of clothing, every pillow, every curtain. I went out to Target and I'm like going around like I need the biggest carpet cleaner. I got one on clearance. I was very proud of that. Came back. We're just going through everything. We did so much laundry. Uh, did the couch, the mattress. So in our, in our Googling, as you, you know you do, learn that fleas don't actually stay on humans, right? They like bite us and apparently jump away. But that didn't stop my psyche from feeling like they were probably living on me anyway, right? They're probably found some kind of way. And so I kept feeling like I was just itching everywhere. I don't know if you've had it where you're just like, I know this isn't rational, but I'm just scratching my head. So I looked at this anti-flea spray that we had bought and the active ingredient was peppermint oil. So I was like, oh, I've got peppermint oil. So I mixed it up with a whole bunch of coconut oil. And I don't tend to work on Mondays, and Rachel does. So she was at work, and I was, you know, tearing through the house. And she comes home, and I've got, like, zones of, like, this zone is clean, and you can, t- you know, you can go there, but you can't touch anything over here. And I've had this oil on my hair, and I slathered it in. 
and I don't know if you've ever put oil on your head, but for hours, like, I was so hot. I, like, my cheeks were bright red, and I'm, like, looking all crazy. And she was like, what is going on? Um, I told her, we can't tell this story until we're sure they're gone, so they're definitely gone. But I have to say, even knowing that they were gone, um, I still find it a little bit psychologically tormenting. You know, you're kind of laying in bed like, is that, is that something? And it's not... And I do think that something similar can be true about some beliefs that we grew up with, especially if you grew up in any sort of fundamentalism of any faith tradition, because every faith tradition has its own brand of fundamentalism. So if you grew up with a fairly rigid view of God, I think sometimes our psyches, and I speak from experience there, can tell us that it's like not okay to pray certain things to God, or it's not okay to believe certain things. And even when you know in your head and you've kind of done the work that maybe it's okay, it can sometimes take even years for those internal responses to start to soften. It's like, oh, that just feels too free or something. So when you read something like, God, I want you to destroy my enemy. Like, I know in my head that that, you know, Psalms are sacred and honest speech with God is like part of our relationship. Something in me, even now when I read that, is like uncomfortable a little bit. And I think have the voices in my head are like, well, Jesus tells us to love our enemies, not pray for their demise. Does that negate the Psalms? I don't think it does, right? Jesus on the cross was praying Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like, where are you? Where the heck are you? And so Reverend John Swinton talks about how the Psalms model this freedom that we have in relating to God, right? We've got this freedom. There are times to have like Psalms or prayers that are a little bit more like reverential, like both things can be true, right? But this is modeling the amount of freedom that we have, and we can see God isn't offended. Right? If there is a creator who is good and who is love in this world, then that God has hurt it all. The God of the Bible, I think, tends to get more offended when people start hurting other people in the name of God's name. Right? But we've got all of this liberty to make ourselves known to the creator, and Brueggemann calls it risky speech. And he says, we often believe that we shouldn't think or feel accusing and vengeful and doubting things as Christians, right? That's not what good Christians do. But we still do think those things or feel those things at times because we're human. And so pretending that we don't doesn't like, tend to the underlying spiritual ache and yearning that's actually happening in that moment, right? Where it's like, my God, what is happening? I need you. I need something here. And sometimes heartbreak just happens when we realize when things are just not as we thought they were. So this is from Brueggemann. This is a quote that's on the sheet if you have it. So Israel knew from the outset that what is felt and thought must be said. And it must be said out loud, and it must be said out loud in the presence of God. Truth-telling through such laments is completely without restraint or reservation because it's truth-telling that goes to the very heart of the speaker. It'll be noted, of course, that the speaker does not act out these violent wishes for vengeance, right? That's important. It's not like we're not encouraging you to go act these out or to do these things. Just voicing them to God in whom the speaker has complete confidence, right? So honest speech helps us know that, give like words and language to the things that we're experiencing and hopefully feel accepted by God in the very state that we find ourselves. And so we find this liberation in prayer. And then we have the Psalms of reorientation, and reorientation doesn't mean going back to the way things were before, like finding that happy place or even believing what you used to believe. If you've ever gone through any kind of significant hardship or tragedy or lost somebody really close to you, like you know nothing is ever the same as it was before. 
but we can find these sort of handholds um, for finding beauty and finding that safety in the world again. And I think the Psalms offer us some examples of what's been helpful to others before from people in the past. And it's a way of like passing along those tools that humans have said, this was helpful to me, right? And some of those might not be helpful to you, but some of them might be. So Psalm 13, I won't read through this whole thing, but how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Look on me and answer me. Give light to my eyes. And then in the third bit there, I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for they have been good to me. All right, so the tool that brings this particular songwriter back to this place of hope here is just grasping on to the idea of hesed, of God's unfailing love. And that becomes like a lifeline of hope for them. And I could say that like personally, in my own sort of spiritual journey, like when I was going through some really, really hard things, that was like the one thing that was like an anchor for me was like, I believe God is love. And if God is love, I'm going to trust that in time, I'm going to get a little bit of a different perspective and some wisdom for how this might make sense. And I'm just going to hold on to this while it feels like, you know, there's like a whirlpool swirling around me. But this, this I know to be true. And that was helpful. Um, this one, the psalmist from Psalm 77, I remembered my songs in the night and my heart meditated and my spirit asked, will the Lord reject forever? And then down, has their unfailing love vanished forever? So like the unfailing love of God is not working for this, for this particular songwriter. Has their promise failed for all time? But then, then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out the right hand and I will remember the deeds of the Lord Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. Okay, so this one, it's remembering the experiences that felt like God in the past. They can be like floaties, you know, like the kids use for their arms in a swimming pool. I will say that's been helpful to me at times in the past as well, where it's like, I don't know what I think or what I feel right now. I'm not sure if I even think God is good, but there's these things in my life that I look back on that just feel like that felt like a spirit of love that was guiding me. And that was like enough of an anchor, right? So there's, there's no formula for like finding our way out of these places of disorientation when we go through those in life. But I think holding on to some basic things that we hope to be true about the creator can just give us enough of a prop that we can start to sort of reconsider our reality. Now, the thing that I do want to make it um, make clear is that I don't want to make it sound like when we're in a state of disorientation, if you find yourself there, maybe you're there now, um, we don't have to feel like reorientation has to happen, right? We don't need to feel that pressure. We don't have to have faith or hope in that moment. I don't approach people who are in that state with this expectation that like, oh, they'll get there. It's like, maybe they won't, right? You're, you're allowed to just sit there. What I see is the psalm saying, here's an invitation if you want it. Does that make sense? Like, here are some offers of ways of things that have helped people before when they're ready, if they're ready, and I think we have to remember, too, that our faith isn't only an individualistic faith. It's a communal faith. It's a group faith. And I would say it's actually more of a communal faith than an individual faith. Right? Christianity is an Eastern religion. Right? It's, it's less of an individual culture. It's more of a relational culture. And so what we can't hope for ourselves can be held by the community in the Christian imagination. Right, that we're part of something that is much longer and that we can lean into the faith and to the hope of others 
and we can allow ourselves to be cared for in sort of the net of that faith community. And so that's why I think healing communities can easily hold space for people who are in a place where they're like, I don't think I believe anything, but I'm coming because I like community. Or I'm mad at God. God seems kind of, uh. And you can feel that way. And it's not threatening. I don't feel threatened by that. It's not threatening to a community um, that understands that we're part of something much larger and that we can hold each other. And I think that that helps create safety for honesty where we're at. So with that, we usually do a minute or so of either silent or guided meditation. And I thought this morning, maybe just make a minute or two here. People and babies make noise. It'll be a little bit of noise. But just for some silence where if we'd like to have an opportunity for some honest speech with God, that we could just do that. And we can bring anything before the spirit um, that we'd like before God, however you understand God. And I'll let you know when that time is up. Jesus, we thank you for the scriptures that have been left to us with wisdom that's been passed down for, with things that can be helpful to us um, as we navigate our relationship with you and with the community. We thank you that we're part of a much larger global faith that can hold us no matter where we're at. And we thank you for the liberty and the freedom that we have in our relationship with you. Um, and I ask that you would show yourself faithful to us wherever we're at and that we would experience you as love and as faithful so that as we come, um, as we grow older and come to the close of our lives, that we'll be able to look back and say, yeah, that was the God that I knew and was kept by. I praise you for that. Amen.